it's just like I see that and I get so mad. I get so fucking mad. I'm just like, who the fuck is this 23-year-old bitch? I don't care. <laughs> like, I don't right. fucking care. That thinks, like, this whole school should just, like, bend to her will. And, like, people are throwing around the word harmful. Harm is, you know, one of those words that we use around social issues in ways where it doesn't make sense. And it's just, like... It's like silence is violence. Well, yeah, it's hyperbole. It's this kind of extreme hyperbole. But it's not used in a hyperbolic way. It's used in a very serious, this causes harm way. Well, yeah, but... That's the problem, is that it's not hyperbolic. Is that it's like, they mean every word of it. Well, they believe it, but like, it's still, yeah, it's still exaggeration. And so then it it feels like when we use, like hyperbole and like everyday conversation it feels like suddenly you're making a bad statement you're like wait no like i didn't quite me like i find myself right. explaining myself when i'm you like when i'm being hyperbolic because i'm like i need to clarify <laughs> yeah it's it, it's interesting how i mean i mean i talk with you about this all the time like i'm fascinated by how social media change not just the way we talk but the way we like kind of interact not like just well, the it changed way we the speak. way we think it changed That's, everything yeah, it changed the way like, we see ourselves in the world it changed this kind of like everybody everything. is on the defensive because they're constantly getting that kind of you know real-time feedback on social media comments and things so everybody is more defensive everybody is but more you also tense. know and you everybody also is know, more though, willing to be bad faith like when i see this with like 20 something year olds and i'm just like yeah i get it like it's not like we don't have something to say when we're 20 but like we have to stop being yeah, like most people don't have they know say. what's yeah. up yeah uh, yeah but i'm not trying to like totally devalue like of the, you know if we yeah. were 20 and we were saying shit and we had complaints about shit like we would want it to be taken seriously but like right. we, you know we also would have gotten smacked down if we were out of order but the biggest problem is that yeah like it is this ignorance it's it's people they haven't done anything they haven't read anything i mean there are entire it's not even the ignorance that's the problem it's the top heavy so well it's i mean it's allowing the ignorance it's i i don't know which is which comes first i have to think on it but like yeah it's allowing that to like yeah yeah, it's like a combination of like really top heavy like administrative bullshit right um Yes, there are teachers. I think there are a lot of teachers who are just sort of doing whatever everyone else is doing because they're afraid. Um, I mean, dude, like I tell you all the time, like I know two people that work at like who teach there. I know three, actually. One decided not to teach this semester. All related. (laughs) They're all in the same family. (laughs) Um, All teach there. And they've all gotten bullshit. They've all gotten bullshit from students, from right. in some cases from deans, and they're all they're all part time faculty too. Right, in um, some cases, and the second not even students go teachers. to them, they're just like student services positions, and people are just being rude as shit. You know, just being yeah. But this is like these are teachers, and this is classroom related stuff, and it's like oh, like some student went and complained to the dean. The dean then like. Uh, yeah yeah, the didn't even just cave just like went ahead and emailed to be like but yeah like i mean to the point where the dean straight up emailed that adjunct and said this is what your students said and you need to correct it basically right 
And what the students had said was like, well, he told us that we aren't allowed, we'll be penalized for being late, but he's always late, except he's not always late. He's there in the classroom. He's just setting up. I'm like, he's the teacher. He gets to do that. He also might get to stand there and wait for the late students to arrive. That's to their benefit, even though, yeah, he says you get penalized. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, I've reached a point where it's I'm insanity. just, yeah, like I am not. I have no faith in it. Yeah, and like, I, I don't no longer... know that I have it in me to like pick up like on top of like all of the sort of online bullshit of it. I just can't. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. It's a failure of the administration because the administration's I mean, job is it's to... The whole yeah. It's the administration. It's the president's. It's the, well, it's, all... it's the whole... Because their job is to, yes, hear students' complaints, but the idea is to, you know, like your job is still to the institution, which is protecting everybody, not just yeah. some angry student who got failed in a class they think they shouldn't have been failed That's what in, I mean. It's know. just like they take any student complaint now... And it's like they take it so seriously right. to the point where it's just like, yeah, it's to the point where we're just firing adjuncts because they showed a historical painting that scholars do study and should be like, I you mean, know, I've been saying after this. giving ample disclaimers to be yeah. like, you don't have like you can leave. This right. is in the syllabus. Yeah. Like, you you know, I gave everyone time to leave before it came this on screen. This is part of the world. The like... student <laughs> chose to sit there yeah. and then like cried because they had to look at it. Yeah. And I'm just like, shut up. You chose this. Like you chose this. You well, decided. And, and it's 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 a false claim. You know, is this student really upset because they saw an image? You know, are they really upset about that? I, know, I, 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 I doubt. I doubt, I doubt it. it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think this comes from like a, an ego thing. Well, it comes from a learned behavior that I think is a learned kind of reaction. And I, social media obviously reinforces it, but it's just like a learned behavior. This is how you behave when you're mad at the teacher or you want to get back at somebody or, you know, it's kind of crazy. But then that's being treated as, you know, it's as real. So we have to treat every little thing as if it's like completely genuine and serious which is a failure of yeah the administration's job their job is to is to literally filter out yeah the serious and real stuff from the just you know hyperbolic exaggerations and you know even if the person was genuinely hurt by it it's like well <laughs> i mean yeah you could have walked out of the room and come back you could have i mean like this is college it, it's you know hate hate is written about this it wasn't even in person it was online it was all online. <laughs> it was online. <laughs> yeah. and she said i'm gonna give you like two minutes to you know i gave a disclaimer i'm giving you some time to <laughs> decide to walk away and now i'm going to show the image <laughs> i wonder if doing that um gives people the option like just making that disclaimer allows people to start thinking that like oh well i can go against this or something or like you said this kind of ego trip where they can be like well i can get this professor you know i have power over your job i have power over you actually uh when really they don't but the administration does and the administration is allowing people to just pick and choose uh i mean it's really incredible. I mean, I they're not doing their job. It's just, yeah. it's hot to be victimized. It's hot to be the victim. Yeah. But that's like a learned thing too. Like that's like, it's just, we emphasize it constantly. Like it's, it's literally part of the curriculum. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, we talk about this mainly in the context of our 
field. So, yeah. And even, I mean, even this like most recent one is art history, like, <laughs> right, which overlaps with our field a yeah. little bit. Yeah. So, this is, you know, publishing industry has had similar issues that overlaps with us. That I just wish that there were more prominent, like, literary people that were like looking at this and going, this is fucked. Um, the only one I know of that's like really big and famous. I haven't that's seen a single it. poet post about this, at least not on Instagram, not but I don't think poet, that will. Not a poet, especially not a mainstream poet. Maybe some of the self-published poets. Yeah, I'm know. only following like mainstream people. But and like it's a, like none of, no one's talking about it, but you know. But the only mainstream figure that's actually, I would say, doing like actually speaking out in a, in a very kind of like you know, calm, normal, like five years ago, it wouldn't have been a controversy at all is Joyce Carol Oates. Joyce Carol Oates. Oh, I'm sure has people been, hate her. They, she does. She gets a lot of shit for it online. She gets a lot of shit for it. She, she's also not someone I really like. I don't think. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of her either, but she's kind of in that weird kind of quasi literary, quasi pop kind of area. Yeah, I feel like she once like said some shit that I was just like, bitch, what are you talking about? Yeah. Like, you know, but like, and but, she's written yeah. so many books that, like, yeah, they can't all be good. She's got a couple really good ones. I think she's written over like sixty books or something in her career. She's up there now, but you know, she's been around a while. She's seen a, a thing or two, and she's been not very vocal, but the most vocal I've seen out of all the big writers that could be. Kind of thing. Like that's it. Yeah. In terms of like, yeah, like you're actually taking away good art you're taking away freedom of expression you're taking away what makes art so great and romanticized and why we love it kind it's of just thing. like i mean you're gonna you can't just start claiming like oh they can now yeah i i mean it's ridiculous to be like now that people feel bad they feel disrespected um so we will not show this well, that's historic really, yeah. 14th century. I mean, and it's not like even the, like it, it's not. I just don't see reason in it. I don't like. Well, there isn't. Yeah. yeah, there's none. Um, to suggest that this is like Islamophobic or that it's well, it's not yeah. harmful. That's the problem. Is that anybody for can somebody say that, whose but it's not. religion it is not. <laughs> Right. And is studying it in the context of art history. Literally, yeah. That's the most important right. part. The context <laughs> of a survey course that goes through all of world history in art. Yeah. Like, that's the context that we're talking here. It wasn't somebody putting this up at, like, you know, a local coffee shop or something. It was to literally... To be like, look at it! Right. It wasn't even a satire cartoon. Like, everybody wants to talk with Charlie Hebdo right. and stuff like that. It was not that. But even then... And even then, then I support the artists. Yeah, I support I'm on this, it, right, yeah. I'm, this, I'm this on the side of Charlie Hebdo. You can't artists assert... I You're think it's just like, yeah, this like this piece is... of this religion that yeah. I'm just like, yeah, no, you can't. Like, yeah, you can observe that as best as you can, but you cannot force it upon the world. Well, it's now they can. Yeah. I mean, but like, yeah, I just, I mean, you can't, not outside of universities. It's not going to happen. You know what the, uh, I'd be interesting to see how that lawsuit plays out too, because they didn't sue them for, and I get it, you know, this person's an adjunct. I don't know the history of that person, but like. 
you know, if they have well, she's money suing for to, defamation, yeah, like if they have money or something to pay for a lawyer. But I mean, like if they don't, I'm assuming they don't because they're an adjunct. Like, you know, yeah. this is a cost. I was shocked like, this that is it, time, I was shocked energy, that it happened. money, I a lot of money. Felt yeah. really disheartened when I read the first article because I was like, she's not even going to sue, but I hope she does. Like, right. I yeah. hope something happens. And I guess fires, I was glad that there was fires any... doing it, right? So it might be nonprofit, so they might not be charging her money. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but either way, it's just, it's so insane to yeah, me. It's absurd. That also that this guy could be like, well, this was my opinion. It's like, no, it wasn't. Right. It's not even his real, he doesn't even hold it. Yeah. That's the thing. That's what you if can't, it were one you can't thing, state something yeah. on behalf of the school and then say it was your opinion. <laughs> Do you yeah. understand how that's fucked up also? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, no, it was the school's opinion because you were a school official and you were making a statement. And not just this a statement, was not you were like taking an personal. action. You were taking a disciplinary yeah. action and they were trying to hide behind the bureaucratic response, which is sure, people can be fired for any reason. And well, no, people don't get staff. fired. People just, who's, their contracts don't right. get renewed. don't get renewed. Except I think we can like just stop being assholes and call it what it is. Especially if she was lined up to teach in the next semester anyway. Right. Or yeah, sign the courses. That, yeah. yeah, I think that you can come out and say yes she was fired right but also i like that she said no i will not at this time accept a position if they offered me one because they've walked it back you know yeah, i saw that they walked back as soon as the lawsuit was filed by a big organization yeah. like fire yeah because, because they probably didn't think yeah. an adjunct didn't think. yeah would come at them well and because it's like that's the thing is we're taking this one person's but adjuncts seriously. are already really angry i think like a lot of us would be actually willing to take that hit like yeah of course especially if fire and organizations willing to help us yeah. with legal stuff yes of course mm -hmm. but that's the thing Maybe. is like even if this student like even if this you know the hypo like the hypothetical student was claiming they believe this like that's what I, I don't believe that you actually believe that like i don't believe that seeing this picture in the context of an art history class like caused, genuinely I, caused yeah, you I do harm. not believe it I believe that the person is a liar and I think more people need to say that this person is lying for attention oh a lot of person, people are saying it on Twitter right. well now they are a lot but of people are saying I've it. seen plenty of people just coming to bat for it you know what I mean just like going to bat for this this kid yeah, who they idiot. don't know they know that this is hyperbolic they know that this is an exaggeration they know that the university actually did the wrong thing and didn't back up their faculty or their curriculum quite frankly like this is a global art history or anything about at a liberal institution yeah like we need to like it needs to be taught mm -hmm. like this is what we always this is what we founded this is why people come all over the world to go to american liberal arts institutions because they create curriculums that are so global and like we do like we are the knowledge center okay like like it's just kind of this these, is so fucking bad. there's like yeah there's just like an ethos there's just this idea that Again, it's it's that famous Carl Sagan quote, right? Your ignorance is just as good as my knowledge. Like, that's what people literally believe. So this student who has not read anything, they're in their 20s. I'm assuming since they're in their 20s, they have not read a book in their life. That's what I'm assuming. If you grew up in America and you're in your 20s right now, you probably have not read a book in your entire life. And they're going to sit here and claim that they know 
just as much as this person who spent years, probably decades studying this field. That's literally what the internet has empowered people to do. And not just, I guess not the internet, but social media specifically, you know, empowered people to do this. And we're treating it like it's equal, like it's the same thing that this person's uninformed opinion weighs just as much as this professor who's been studying this one tiny field for like decades. And it's incredibly asinine, but we all are sitting around like we don't know what to do. We're, oh, I don't know. It's a tough one. It's like, no, it's not tough. We know the answer. And yeah. clearly fire knows the answer. And clearly the university knows the answer because they're walking it back already with this crap. And it's just, we'll see what happens. So, but I would bet. Yeah. I mean, like even the chapter of like the like Muslim group that is, has, the chapter on the campus again yeah. yeah like even some of their people who are on campus like have said some shit that the group has been like yeah we don't right agree with that well because <laughs> we it's, it's so because it, it's so over the top like it's so hyperbolic it's so exaggerated that like, this is when you your comment about harm like it's this we're exaggeration fragile. that we're harming people by showing images that we're harming people by publishing books like it is an absurd exaggeration Everybody who has a lick of sense knows this, but we have to keep pretending because otherwise people are going to yell at us online. And this, I think this university administration is walking it back already because they thought there wouldn't be any consequences apart from the social consequences. Well, I yeah, think I wonder how many followers their social media accounts lost. I think they put it on private for a while because they were getting so much trolling and stuff over this. Yeah. I just stopped following all the journals. Yeah, so I think they started it's like, Fuck you. just being like, you know, you can set the settings so people can just stop replying and stuff. Because, yeah. you know, you're getting hounded with trolls. I understand that, you know, like people are DMing you death threat. Like, yeah, you're like, okay, I'm just going to lock this so you can't just, strangers can't just start saying things to me, whatever. Yeah. But like, yeah, and of course, the, I think they're going to walk out. We're going to see more of this, but I think it's also, we're going to see more people like adjuncts. By a university that fire. probably won't survive for that much longer. Right. And yeah. I think it's only going to get worse. We're going so aren't to they see like more a small of this. private institution? Like... Yeah. Uh, or I, I don't know, but probably. I've never really heard of the university until this scandal, Hamline is called. Uh, Hamline University or something. Hamline, never... yeah. They have, I mean, they have Waterstone and Runestone. They're like have fairly notable writing undergrad programs. Like they've, they're one of like the best like teachers, creative writing teachers supposedly at Towson, left Towson for that. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse in terms of adjuncts sign of suing because of stuff like this, or even tenured faculty. Like I've heard even more horrific stories of people that were tenured track and or tenured and they're getting treated like shit by the university oh, yeah. for something they said or did or taught or a book they assigned. It's really gotten insane, but I think it's going to get worse in terms of the people clamping down too. Like it's steadily increased as the years have gone on, like students more emboldened, uh, well, faculty you know, Hamline is reviewing their policies on academic freedom because yeah. their president is an asshole. She's an idiot. And she's like, clearly unqualified for the job. Yeah. If this is the case, if this is how she's handling it, like she clearly doesn't. Well, we need to position. rewrite the definition of academic freedom because right. it can't be at the expense of what? A student lying and saying they were offended. That's what. Yeah. A student's feelings. But it's not even like that's the thing is I don't even like, believe you, that student felt that. You're feeling, yeah. yeah. But I think that like 
even if it was what they felt. So you're going to rewrite this policy because a student said they felt hurt by this image in this particular context in which they didn't have to see it. Yeah. So why did you stay is what I would ask. Because they wanted to do this. Why did you sign up for this class? You're a business major. I bet the student is getting all kinds of, I bet they're getting job offers for doing this. Oh, they're getting a lot of hate though. A lot of people being like, you're you're clearly unhireable. Like... People saying that on social media is one thing, but I bet they're getting offers yeah. from places like, yeah, a lot of organizations that would hire somebody that's willing to lie or exaggerate or yeah. really go so off the walls, be so unreasonable that we have to, like, you're made to look stupid if you're being reasonable. Like, you're not allowed to be reasonable in this context. Yeah, There's a lot of organizations yeah. that would hire somebody like that. Yeah, schools. Yeah, well, yeah, most of them schools and or nonprofits affiliated with education or something like that. Yeah, school's dead. Heavy. Bored. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy, heavy. Bored. like halfway through I didn't even know what state we were in anymore you mean like what like and as I lay dying oh 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 in the book and as I lay dying I mean Mississippi right yeah I mean I was gonna guess there we go Mississippi thank god but yeah you know one of those southern places that have a place called Jefferson Jefferson, yeah. I lived in Louisiana for several years. They have a Jefferson Davis Parish. Everywhere has a Jefferson. Yeah. Oh, that, well, and it is interesting, like, when I lived in the South, and I lived in a city in the South, but, you know, surrounded by the cities of the small towns and things like that, like, it is a different world. And, like, reading, living in that and experiencing it made me appreciate this Faulkner novel more. I know that's going to sound silly to people that are from that part of the country and stuff. They're like, well, of course, you know, I'm like, yeah, well, literally, if you're a city boy like me, like, you literally don't know it, like, until you go there and see it, like. It's literally, like, just a fiction to you. Yeah, exactly. It's like in a book, something in a book, and then you go there, and it's like, or it's something in a movie nowadays, because people don't read books, but it's like, you go there, and then you're like, oh, this is real, actually, like. People believe in God this much. And, of course, the context for this is, like, you know, this is the Great Depression era, 1930. Yeah. This novel came out, so all that stuff is... So when you're poor and you're living in the rural area outside of major towns, and I think we're going to get to this in the discussion, listeners, but, like, those scenes when they go into town with the with the horse and cart and everybody's coming up to them with the rags over their nose because of the smell, 
and it's like like aliens coming into a different planet almost right these rural right. people that are barefoot dirty they have this dead body that's like in the back of the wagon that's stinking up the whole street because it's like over two weeks. yeah they're basically now. a circus that isn't wanted right yeah it's a spectacle it's like a to two people that are not used to that or haven't yeah. lived that or seen it right just as much as the city is a spectacle to people that lived outside of it or whatever. And I get, you know, this was a different time. These rural areas, while they still exist, have been dwindling for the last century, right? Like, to non-existence. If anybody's ever driven through the South or even, like, just like a large state like Texas, what's I found most interesting about it is there's a lot of towns in Texas that were existed during various booms, either the oil booms or the mining booms throughout that state. And then, you know, somewhere around the 80s, 70s, they started to become unincorporated towns, which means legally that the federal government really removed a post office from that city. So it's no longer recognized as a U.S. city because there aren't enough people living there. You know what I mean? One of the strangest things. And I mean, you can do this all over parts of America, you know, ghost towns and things like that that are like tourist things. But it is unbelievable. And I get I say in this, it could be offensive, like, but because I'm coming from like an anthropological area, like, <laughs> like kind of like an anthropological way. But yeah, it's incredible. All right, but we're going to get to it. This is Heavy Board. I'm Andrew Wittstadt. I'm a little gassy today. And today we are doing William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying, one of the most famous American novels ever written. I think this winner of the Nobel Prize. Uh, and we have originally published in 1930, but we have two different versions of this I have a vintage paperback that was published originally in 2004. And I think I have a weird one, though. I have, like, somehow on, on Amazon, I ended up getting, like, the British, like, the UK and Australian uh, print mm. for it. But it's available on Amazon. We'll link it down there, as always. And Sophie, what did you have? Um, I actually have a Norton Anthology of American Literature, Volume D, 8th Edition. Happened oh. to have the full text in there already. Nice. Full text in there. That's actually... Uh, I didn't even realize that. Yeah. That's interesting that it's a full novel in the Norton text. Mm-hmm. Shows yeah, they had just expanded it to include more complete, longer works. It right. also had... I mean, yeah, a lot of these honestly aren't that long, but like, I mean, entire plays that they had in here. uh, Right. I mean, they have all of my Antonia, which I would also like to read. When was that Um, published? The, um, I mean, the anthology. Oh, um, this had to be. Just for the book nerds, the book nerds listening in. This has to be a while back. Let me double check. Imagine early 2000s or something. Yeah, 2012. 2012, okay. And I don't know, they probably put out an updated edition since then. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. Just the listeners know. And you know, that might have different, longer texts. It might have some of the same, but you know. So that's the text, listeners, that's the book. Okay, fuck housekeeping. 
Reminder to listeners, we're still looking for uh, workshop horror stories. If you have a workshop horror story and you want to share it with us, please send it to heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. You can contact us there as well. We also have a subscription plan. You can subscribe to this podcast at patreon.com slash heavyboard to receive full uncensored episodes for subscribers only, bonus content, all that good stuff. Uh, If you can't afford that, don't want to do that. There are other ways you can support us. You can leave us a five-star review on Apple. Spotify, anywhere you get your podcast that helps us out, that helps us grow. You can check out, like, subscribe, share to any of our YouTube channels. That helps us out. That's a free way to support us. We appreciate it. And as always, you can find everything we cover in the description of this episode. And that's housekeeping. All right. Where do you want to start? Just do initial thoughts, impressions. Time, what it was like to read this yeah <laughs> go for it so uh, this one made me feel really stupid i had a really hard time at first um, especially when it came to establishing like in my head who the characters were uh as you may know this is a novel that's broken into many voices right so we switch between different characters perspectives and we get these monologues or like Um, sometimes their perspective on an interaction that happens sometimes we'll get things kind of out of order like we'll learn that something has happened and not until the next speaker do we actually learn the details of what happened right so there are lots of moments where it does feel a little bit jarring or you feel i i felt ungrounded um at first that isn't to say it's not good it's really good I think part of me was a bitch because it's just not what I felt like reading. <laughs> like, I don't know. I, w- I was in the mood for garbage, I think. Um, this isn't garbage, so. But, and also just, like, dialect can obviously be hard. Written in a very different style than I'm accustomed to reading. So, yeah, that gave me, it gave me some difficulty. It's really, I would say, overall very sad. Yeah very interesting uh once I, I think it took a long time to feel like something was happening yeah but again i was also like kind of just like uh, i just like want something trashy you know coming yeah. down off of lana del rey that's <clears throat> like give me trash and it's like we talked about that we we haven't done a whole lot of modernist stuff but with the stuff we have done with like i'm thinking the virginia wolf and things like you know we talked about how listeners could go back and listen to that but like the how the modernist why are they so beloved by mostly college professors and things like that well because they were like the last big innovative movement and they purposely used every tool in the toolbox like when they were making when they were writing something so we talked about this a little bit with Virginia Woolf's stream of consciousness and things like that, the sentence structure, the little punctuation rules that are used to the author's advantage, to the text's advantage. They're using every tool in the toolbox to... Yeah, well, and I think we also get a lot of, like, stuff that feels very in line with modernism in terms of some of the ideas that are presented. Even, like, you know, um, I'm sure we'll we'll talk about Addie's bit, but like when Addie is talking about words and words are like inadequate, like that was a big modernist idea, right? right. Words are kind of inadequate to express what we mean. Right. 
Or did I make that up? Like, is that no, is that no, no? Thing? I think it's in there. She's talking about in regards to faith with Cora in that yeah, section, yeah, but it's yeah. same, same principle still applies though. Yeah, to like modernist text, and then yeah, because words. We've talked about this on some of our poetry episodes. This is the first time I guess we're bringing it up on fiction, or we did bring it up on fiction. I think in our Joy Williams with the kind of the limits of language. You know, language, we were like, oh, it's really free. You know, writing is ultimately free. It is, right? Because there is this ultimate freedom Well, and this is creating. also like what every sort of movement in literature revolves around is like what. <laughs> yeah, where are the I mean, limits? It sounds, yeah. it sounds kind of dumb, but like, yeah, what what is this movement's ideas about the limitations of language? Right. Because it and is how limiting. how do they express yeah. it? Because it can only go so far. You know, it can only go so far. And the whole point of the art craft is to make it feel like it can go even further, right? You know, like that's the art of like literary writing, literary poetry type thing. But yeah, I remember this isn't the first time I've read this book. This is the second time I read it in undergrad for a class the first time, you know, and I was in my 20s. And I had a lot of the issues the first read that Sophie described where it's a little confusing. You just have to kind of keep reading because you don't quite understand how these characters match up. You even don't quite understand how they're related to one another until like halfway through the novel and all that. You just have to kind of keep going and it starts to fall into place. And that makes it a little confusing. Uh, second read for me, even like a decade later here, it was easier because I knew that kind of stuff going in. But yeah, first time reading some of this and it's like not like a difficult text, you know, like it's not like he's using a lot of big words or structures. I would still argue it's a difficult, it's a fairly it's, difficult text. I'm, I'm trying to think, how would we describe how it's difficult? You know what I mean? I mean, it's well, it's really playful. The, yeah. I think, I mean, there's a lot of moments where we have like some of that kind so of many perspectives. Of consciousness. Yeah. Um, so many perspectives. perspectives. Just yeah. not being able, sort of suppressing what's happening by having characters alluding to what's right. happening without telling you. So, like, we know something's up. We know that they're referring to something that has happened, but we don't know what that thing is. Right. Um, gosh, what's like a, a good example? When do, Dewey, Dewey Dell. Dell. Yeah. Um, throughout, you know, keeps referring to how, oh gosh, you know, he could help me. Darl could help me. She says that, right? It's Darl that she says could help her, um, over and over again. If he only knew, right. Um, but we don't know what it is that he doesn't know or that he could help her with or what she's struggling with or what's going on there. Um, I was really confused about their relationship at first. I was like, oh, are they like in a thing i was like is that right. how this is gonna go was like i kid? mean was it yeah. daryl that had that, that, that impregnated her oh yeah well i was like, like, like wondering that, that early before we knew she before i learned that she was pregnant right right um because it seems like they have this weird connection but she does seem to say that it's the other guy her, right. her man um but we also yeah and she's 17 and yeah but we don't learn that until like the end really it's yeah. really not until the end that we learn that. And we get some of these allusions to something being go- like that's going on with her, that she something she needs help with really early on, but we don't know what. Um, and I'm sure you could guess at it, you know, but it it's really suppressed. I think it would be hard. I don't think I could have guessed. Yeah. And it's revealed very masterfully in that, like that it's so subtle and suppressed, but it gets slowly revealed as you keep yeah. reading. I think that's the real mastery of somebody like Faulkner, somebody who we consider as like an American master. Um, 
and he was incredibly prolific. He wrote a lot of novels. His two biggest ones are this one, As I Lay Dying, and then, of course, The Sound and the Fury are his two big ones that he wrote around the same time here in the 30s, early 30s. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, so you just know that it's that kind of thing. Uh, what was I going to say? Okay, so we talked about that, the setup, all that good stuff. Uh, for me, reading through, like, I told Sophie this, I was texting her, like, I was almost hypnotized. Like, I read this in, like, two sittings, basically. Uh, and I just kind of blew through it. Like, the way it kind of drew me through. I don't know, there's just something about, like, great literature that even if it's, like, not a great story, it, like, pulls you through the work quickly. Like, it, like, propels you through it. Um, well, and the writing telling, itself is interesting, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. Like I was saying, I've noticed this about some of you know the greats, lesser works. If you read what we call great writers and stuff, you know the Hemingways, the Virginia Woolfs. If you read their like lesser works, like their lesser known stuff that you know just isn't quite as good as their masterpieces type thing. You know the stories aren't as good as their masterpieces, but they still kind of pull you through them. There's something about these kind. There's a quality in these kind of more literary. Well, there works. there are a lot of elements I think that do that. One is just like the need to like know to be able to like pull all of these strings together and understand how they interconnect, because or otherwise you put the book down and you have all these loose ends and you're like, well, what about that thing? Um, right. What is up with Vardaman, which we'll get to. Um, yeah, Vardaman, dude. But yeah, I mean, like, there are, you know, even the fact that, um, something I, I, I don't think I really thought about as I was reading, but after the fact is that, like, we have these, like, you know, they're, they refer to themselves as, like, country people, right? Um, presumably, like, not highly educated. Um, one of our, big speakers throughout the book speaks almost as though he like is <laughs> right I would say that Darl speaks in a way that is maybe surprising given the way everyone else around him speaks you know it's not yeah. entirely like out it, at odds with it but and we refer all, the book refers to Darl being strange again and again Right, people think Darl is a strange guy, um, so I'm kind of curious about that. But I, you know, and I think a lot of really strong writers know how to do that well, also, especially when you're dealing with something like, for instance, a child character. Right? Yeah, and Daryl, I like that you bring that up because Daryl, I think, is the one we get the most of. We get his perspective the Darl? most. Yeah, Darl, Daryl, yeah, Darl, Darl. Darl. Yeah. Uh, my first names. question, yeah, my first question is, you know, what is it about these small rural town folk? Like, why small towns? Why are we drawn to that? Why are writers drawn to that? We talked about mm -hmm. this a little bit last episode on kind of like the city versus rural novel because that article came out or whatever that we glanced at, and, you know. Or, yeah, what are, you know, we're just theorizing. We're just theorizing. I think there know. could be a few reasons. One, I think if you grow up around it and you leave it, that's probably a big motivation to write about something like that. Just seeing that massive difference, right? Because he does, even throughout this um, story, create like 
an interplay between the country folk and the town folk and how they feel about each other. Right? Which I'm sure was a big part of his life because he I came from rural, rural Mississippi. And like then he, yeah. he was a big in the 30s after his big hits here, like As I Lay Dying, he was a screenwriter. He wrote yeah. for Hollywood. There's like, I think he only did that for like a decade before he got sick of it, but I'm sure he made a lot of money doing that. And then like, you know, kind There's of went back to but his But also rural, just being in yeah. such a small world. Right. Um, and you know, I personally am drawn to kind of, there's something, this is, it might sound of like bad to people living in a world, but it's like, there's something mythic about a small town as opposed to a city, right? Cause a city, it feels like it's been all discovered. There's like all these things that are there, but like, there's I think something it also mythic takes us hidden. back to like this idea of like the American prairie. Right. You know? Maybe this, this <laughs> like frontier. This... Yeah. Exploring the frontier. Maybe um, that's why I said it could be maybe it could be offensive to somebody that's like grew yeah. up in the rural like fuck you city people but like you know I think that's there I think that is like uh, or yeah like the, the frontier expansion yeah also something Exploring. that we didn't grow up with so there is I think a curiosity there right anyone yeah. who doesn't grow up in this is like what is that like <laughs> you know. Or even, um, I think, yeah, I don't know. I think writers have different motivations for being drawn to it, and readers do too. Sure. But it's definitely a landscape that, like any, I would say, you know, has a lot to delve into and to look at and to, like, just some of the, um, you know, especially, like, when it comes to, like, farming right yeah there's like a fantasy about that it's interesting too like um, there's like that homesteading fantasy there's like this kind of like living off the land fantasy that people yeah. have in a kind of our modern world where like we go into a grocery store we don't have to farm and slaughter the pig ourselves we just buy the smoked bacon and the package you know there's like that kind of aspect to it but i'm always thinking more of like you know, the same reason I really like the Coen brothers, not just because I think they're good directors and writers, but like this kind of like, you know, their first, all their hits, all their really big hits, the Coen brothers movies, anybody that's a movie fan knows what I'm talking about. Like they were small town kind of stories. Like I'm thinking of like their first big hit, Blood Simple, right? In the eighties where it's like this small Texas town where like this little lie kind of blows up into this huge thing and it causes all this controversy. And it's like, you know, there's something mythical about these kind of like, it's almost like a secret. Like you're uncovering a secret maybe is what I'm trying to get. Well, at. yeah. Like I said, this I hidden think world it's... from most people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sorry. and the place itself is like, I mean, this feels obnoxious to say because I'm sure we all like read a streetcar named desire and had the discussion about how the city was a character itself, you know, but like it does, oh, yeah. it, it, it is that way. Like it is, uh, you begin to understand the place as having a certain character. It is like its own small universe <laughs> um, where everyone in it has the same sort of, uh, I don't know, beliefs and motivations and um, way of life. Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, yeah, there's just something that draws me to it, too. I was texting Sophie about this. I kept reminding. I mean, I'm sure Larry McMurtry was pretty was a big fan of Faulkner. 
this kind of like the rural kind of cowboy novel type thing that came that was very popular like in the 50s 60s 70s in America at least right this kind of romanticizing the old west and these small towns and all that especially as they were crumbling like these towns grew up and then they lived for a hundred years because of some boom. I live in a state where there's a lot of that. There were, you know, our capital Carson city in Nevada here. It was originally the capital because Vegas didn't fucking exist. Okay. <laughs> like Vegas was not like a city then like Carson city was like the middle of the state. It was the center of the mining industry. That mining industry has broken down. It's become industrialized to the point where it's just a few big companies that mine all over the state. So they don't need to be in Carson city. And then, you know, the gambling industry sprung up in Vegas and now Vegas is the largest city in the state. So it is this kind of weird, like, especially in these kind of Western or Southern states, like the later expansion of the United States. Um, there's just something to it. I don't know, like this kind of like, you know, one of the big tourism things here are the ghost towns. There are towns that are less than a hundred people, right? Like, like I said, driving through Texas is even just driving through it. Like, is an educational experience if you haven't experienced that kind of like driving from a town where there's like literally like 300 people living in it to a huge city like Dallas and it's you know it's only a couple hundred miles outside of Dallas or something where there's millions of people and just how radically different the two worlds are well yeah there's also like this sense of it being a world that's really insular you know even though is, yeah. like um even in the book, you know, it's like there's, even though there is ultimately like a way out, it's like there's no way out. Um, but yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, the kind of victim of circumstance kind of aspect. Yeah, well. <laughs> We've talked about this on a couple of, a lot of different of episodes. Shit and yeah. the seemingly a victim of a lot of shit if you're Ants Bundren, or at least if, or so he seems to think. Yeah, what do we think of ants? That's one of my oh, questions. Such a little piece of shit. Yeah. Such a fuck. I mean, he sucks. <laughs> and <laughs> ants and is like the father. Him, right? <laughs> yeah. So we only see and hear him sort of secondhand through other characters through most of the book. Um, it starts with Darl. He hears who we learn to be his older brother sawing. Right, and this is really recurrent also throughout. We keep hearing the saw. Yeah. Um, and we learn that Addie Bundren, he's making a, a box for Addie Bundren to lie in. Addie Bundren is his mother, um, or their mother, and the box he's making, obviously, a coffin. Yeah. Well, I just they mean, like, they don't refer to it as a coffin for a while. Yeah, <clears throat> you learn Cash, the oldest son, is uh, busy making a coffin. And then you learn throughout the book that he's actually quite a capable carpenter. Like locally, people contract him, and that's how he makes money is he'll like build stuff and fix roofs for people, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. But I mean, just like Ants as a character, like, yeah, we get Ants Bundren, who's like the father figure of this kind of, you know, rural family. <clears throat> that's you learn as you read the book, you learn that it's kind of messed up, you know. And then Ants Bundren is kind of... I'm just trying to figure out where we first learn about Ants. Ants' perspective... We don't get Ants' perspective until late, I would say, Uh, in the book. Page 29 on my copy is his first chapter. 
but it's yeah. short and i think it's he brief. he he has very brief kind of like you kind of get inside his head a minute or two and it's usually after we saw the events take place in another character section usually right Darl so i'm or, saying uh, like what is the first image of ants we get i don't know what it is but basically we get not a very kind um, i think tall. of who he is I think um, I think Tull that I don't know if I forget who Tull is, but uh, he's on page twenty three. Vernon Tull. Vernon Tull is Cora Tull's husband and husband, neighbor right. and the neighbor to the um to the Bundrens. But he's the first one. Like Tull is the first one to show skepticism, right? Like the first two chapters where we have Cora and Daryl and Jewel and like these kind of brothers and Cora the neighbor. <coughs> But then we get, like, Tull is kind of telling us how Ants is, right? Like, uh, well, he's, like, saying, you know, Ants, Ants doesn't have a lick of sense type yeah, thing. Yeah, you know, Cora's like, kind of stupid. Cora's kind of like a typical um, kind of Baptist Southern girl, if anybody's ever met them. They're just, like, very religious, devoutly religious. Um, when people are arguing or something, she'll just start, like, singing hymnals and stuff to, like, get them to stop arguing, you know, kind of all that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, I mean. But we learned that he's seems... this kind of incredible selfish, like Ants is, Ants is incredibly yeah. selfish. He's not very smart. He's also very like kind of, you know, as throughout the novel, we get a few characters that come in just a little bit. So Tall is one that comes in just a little bit. Peabody, the doctor kind of neighbor mm -hmm. that comes and like kind of takes care of the rural county's, you know, medical needs. He kind of travels through by horse to all these different farms that are far away from him. Um, who else am I thinking of that's there? Whitfield is like a Whitfield, neighbor from a, another uh, county. That like, and the, all of those people, what they all have in common is they all talk about how like Ants Bundren ain't got no sense, right? Like Ants yeah. Bundren ain't got no sense. What's he doing? And there? what's he doing trying? So the whole, I mean. And Ants keeps yeah. going like, no man mislikes it more than me, he says. He's like, yeah. yeah, well, he keeps making decisions that are not in his or his family's best interest. I mean basically it's already kind of insane so like you know as an outsider in the time that we live in reading a story in which someone yeah. is building a coffin for someone who is not yet dead and tall right. this section in tall's here is like he's talking to ants and he's describing his conversation with ants and he's talking about like so if he said the first couple of pages we learn that somebody's dying we don't quite know who yet but we kind of get they're hinting towards the mother of the family is yeah. dying slowly but he's talking about moving the body because the whole point of the story as we said is that Addie's dying dies and then they need to get her body to jefferson which is a day's ride away and then there's all this stuff that happens that prevents them from getting there quickly but like so ants says to tell She'll want to get started right off, he says. It's far enough to Jefferson at best. He's like, but the roads is good now, I say. It's fixing to rain tonight, too. His folks buries at New Hope, too. Not three miles away, but it's just like him to marry a woman born a day's hard, a day's hard ride away and have her die on him. He looks, over, he looks over the land, rubbing his knees. No man mislikes it. No man so mislikes it, he says. Sorry, I keep fucking up this because of the dialect. Like Sophie said, it's not a normal dialect. Yeah. It's kind of like a country twang dialect. And I'm actually fighting to not read it in an accent, like a bad Mississippi accent. I don't know Mississippi accents as well as I know, like, 
that's one thing too, living in like an area that I didn't grow up in for a few years in Louisiana there. Like I started to learn the difference between a Texas accent and Louisiana accent, which I just assumed they were all Southern before kind of thing. Didn't live close enough to Mississippi to uh, pick up on that, but I knew a few people from there. But yeah, there's like a very distinct regional accents. Like no man, no man so mislikes it. He says, I am a luckless man. Yeah. She's a going, he says. Her mind is set on it. It's a hard life on a woman, for a fact. Some women. I mind my mammy lived to be 70 and more. Worked every day, rain or shine. Never a sick day since her last chap was born until one day she kind of looked around her. And then she went and taken that lace-trimmed nightgown she had, she had had 45 years and never wore out of the chest and put it on and lay down on the bed and pulled the covers up and shut her eyes. You all will have to look out for Pa the best you can, she said. I'm tired. <laughs> sorry for the accent uh it's hard not to yeah dude but as i was reading like it works better if you throw in the accent too like you get to hear the dialect type thing and you know we haven't really talked about that because we really haven't done any of like the kind of like late 19th century early 20th century realism thing i guess we should throw a few books on the list from there uh you know, but I remember reading one in a class in undergrad that was like from like the late eight, late eighteen hundreds. You know, uh, and I just remember being like, "This is fucking like if I don't read this out loud, I do not understand it." You know, there are parts of even like yeah, you know, some Mark Twain books and stuff where you don't understand the unless you're reading out loud. With kind of this realism craze that happened at that time, and we haven't really talked about it, but I guess we'll add some to the list. But yeah, dude, Ants is basically a piece of shit, and they kind of, they don't even say, but they don't say that right away. They kind of make you think he's kind of dumb, and doesn't know better, and is doing his best, and then you learn later on as it progresses, and it gets steadily worse and worse, that like, oh wow, this guy's a terrible father, all his children hate him, like he's a piece of shit, and he doesn't care, and... And his wife hated him. Yeah. His <laughs> wife hated him and cheated on him. Uh, <laughs> and, every, and his neighbors hate him. And yeah, like his neighbors hate just him. just hates him. Yeah. Because he's a bad guy. Yeah. And everybody knows that Ants Budren is cheap and poor and is going to swindle you in a deal and don't trade with him. And Well, and like he just makes his family work a yeah, lot. And he doesn't work. Right. Yeah. And he doesn't do shit. Yeah, because um, to, be, to break out of sweat would make him sick, let's say, in the first yeah. couple of chapters. Yeah, that's a whole thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he just sucks. And w- one of the things that confused the shit out of me was that Daryl's, like, kept coming back to that kind of... Daryl. Yeah, is, was, was... Yeah, type that didn't... Of is, was... I was like, what the fuck is this guy saying? Like. Yeah, it was confusing. Uh, I was, hang on, let me, <laughs> I gotta find it. I think I marked it. It's in one of the Daryl, ch- I marked page 88, but let me check. Cause I think he brings it up a few times, but I think by page 88 in my copy, I was like, all right, what the fuck is he saying here? Yeah. Well, and by that point we had also had a lot from Vardaman. Yeah. We? And and it's actually it's actually in Vardaman's chapter that we get this, and I guess it's supposed to show Vardaman being confused by it, because that's where I marked it, because I think I was at that point. Because yeah, we were in a Daryl chapter that's is very short. Then we go to a short Vardaman chapter, and then back to Daryl. So it's like these two. It's like an interaction happening between these characters, and then we're jumping back and forth between their perspective. 
and Vardaman's supposed to be the youngest brother. He's like, we don't really know. Sophie and I talked like he doesn't really know. We don't really know how old Vardaman is. We assume he's under like 10. Like, but we of. don't actually. Yeah, by the end of yeah. this, I didn't. Um, by the end of this, I felt like, okay. The I mean, also, it seems like other people see him as strange. But there are moments when I feel like maybe he does seem like maybe he is older than 10. I don't know what is, it goes. Uh, Cash is the oldest. Then we have Daryl. And then there's what, like a big gap. Then there's a big gap. Then there's Jewel. And Jewel was the one that wasn't Ants' yeah, son. There's, and there's like a 10 year gap, right? Yeah. Um, and then there's Jewel. And then Dewey, Dale, and Vardaman. Dewey, Dale, and, and Vardaman. Dewey, Dale's the And it girl. sort of suggested that they all came and sort of quick succession and Dewey Dell is 17 except Jewel I think Jewel was the one that like because she cheated on Ants with Whitfield and Jewel that's why there's like this tension between Jewel and Ants they play off right from the beginning you know and really between Jewel and everybody else and in everyone. the family yeah and he kind of keeps to himself like he bought his own horse like he was like we learn eventually that he was like lying about this one thing so he could go cut a field in the middle of the night to save up money for himself to buy himself a horse and like ants got all pissed at him for that and and then yeah then we have like dewey dell and vardman which are like the younger two and i guess mm-hmm. we don't really know how old vardman is but like from this so if he was <laughs> like from the text of vardman we're like is this kid like retarded or something, yeah, <laughs> like, something going on yeah i mean there's <laughs> definitely like something going on with vardman yeah. i mean his sentences. I think do not the, the sentences suggest that something's up there I, I'm I feel like especially like closer to the end it starts to get really here's like I say here let me read a confusing section yeah, from this and this I'm, is the I'm this is for a good one there's this there's this part where Vardaman starts after his mother dies he starts to say his mother is a fish and I think if I had to guess Faulkner's trying to show us a younger kid's rationalization of his mother's death sure right? this is how he's dealing with grief Right. So he keeps calling his mother a fish throughout the novel. And this is almost halfway here. But he says, but my mother is a fish. Vernon's seen it. He was there. Jewel's mother is a horse, Darrell said. Then mine can be a fish, can it, Darrell, I said. Jewel's my brother. Then mine will have to be a horse, too, I said. Why, Darrell said. If pa's your pa, why does your ma have to be a horse just because Jewel's is? Why does it, I said. Why does it, Darrell? Darrell is my brother. Then what is your ma, Darrell, I said. And he said, I haven't got her one, Daryl said, because if I had one, it is was. And if it is was, it can't be is, can it? No, I said. Then I am not, Daryl said. Am I? No, I said. I am. Daryl is my brother. But you are, Daryl, I said. I know it, Daryl said. That's why I'm not it. That's why I am not is. Are is too many for one woman to follow. Like, that's literally a dialogue exchange and kind of an internal exchange between Vardaman and Darrell. And I was just so confused by the time I got to the end of it. I was like, what the fuck are they talking about? (laughs) Yeah. He starts to repeat like this person, my brother, Darrell is my brother. (laughs) Like toward the end, that happens a lot. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? He also doesn't seem to understand too that like they're going to town. And as they're going to town, he keeps bringing up this train that he wants that I guess maybe the shopkeeper promised he wouldn't sell. I think right? he so saw 
I, they don't I, I kind of was confused by that too I think it's like a mention of something they saw last time they were in yeah. town and they said he couldn't have it till Christmas maybe Santa would bring it because obviously they're poor they can't afford toys and stuff for Christmas like this yeah and like you know this is the beginning of the Great Depression era too right 1930 this is like supposed to reflect that everybody's going hard times now you know especially if you lived in the rural farming communities and it's just like yeah I, I don't I don't get it I mean, you know, whatever. You don't have to get every aspect because it still works overall as a whole. But yeah, like Vardaman was always a puzzling aspect. Yeah, to I, this. and it doesn't have to be. I'm just gonna say kind of like neurodivergent. You know, like it <laughs> <laughs> mild Aspergers, dude. <laughs> I mean, he could be somewhere on the spectrum. It could be neurologically like atypical, of, dude. Neurologically yeah, atypical. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but like truly, we don't know. Like we don't quite yeah. know what's up there. Yeah. Um. Ants yeah. teeth, dude. Oh yeah, that was interesting. The so whole that's book, a whole he's just yeah. toothless, gummy. Yeah. And he's talking about how he's been wanting to get his teeth fixed for like a decade. And again, yeah. keep in mind this is nineteen thirties, so like kind of oral hygiene was not normal. Like and us flushing and brushing. Like getting daily. your teeth yeah. fixed here means dentures. Yeah, getting um, a set of dentures. But still, even dentures, you know, dentures are painful if they're not molded to your mouth right. And back in the day, I don't know what they used in the 30s for dentures. But, you know, yeah. now they're much more, you can actually get them implanted in your face, in your head, too, so you don't have to take them out all the time. Because I remember my grandparents having, like, kind of old school dentures where you, like, had to take them out when you slept and shit. Yeah. But, like, yeah, now so they have, like, implants and shit, you know, modern technology. Yeah. But um, in terms of, like... Um, yeah, I mean, there's a good bit about, uh, ants that comes from Samson, who is, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, I think Someone... Samson shows up, um, during the funeral, right? When all the people are coming through. Is that what it is? Is it a funeral? Like, I don't know. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like a message was shown and, you know, Addie died. So a bunch of people kind of, you know, it's a rural area. So your neighbors are like miles away. Is that what he's, okay. So I was really confused because they refer to the funeral. I was like, wait, did they already go to town and like come back? Like I thought that was the whole story. Samson, I think is, okay. So Samson, the first one of Samson, I guess 90 page 96. I think this is right when they're taking the wagon and they're taking Mm -hmm. it from the house. This is after the kind of funeral or viewing type thing. Yeah. But there was someone else who mentions the funeral. No, he does. He does quick. He says, but quick had been to the funeral three days ago and we were naturally never, we naturally never thought anything about it except that they were heading away from home mighty late. Yeah. Um, and that they hadn't heard about the bridge. It's Bundren from down beyond New Hope, Quick says. There's one of them Snopes horses Jules riding. I don't know there was Arowana on the I didn't I didn't know I didn't know there was Arowana of them horses left, my column says. I thought you folks down there finally contrived to get them all away. Try and get that one, Quick says. The wagon went on. I bet old man Lon never give it to him, I says. No, Quick says. He bought it from Pappy the wagon went on they must not have heard about the bridge he says what are they doing up there anyway mccollum says taking a holiday since he got his wife buried i reckon quick says heading for town i reckon with toll's bridge gone too i wonder if they ain't heard about the bridge like and that's like the whole big event in the novel is they're trying to get her to jefferson mississippi which is a day's ride away right no cars there were cars existed but poor people couldn't afford them and then like there's this bridge in this river 
that like it rains and if anybody that's from the south or lived in the deep south it rains all the time and bridges flood out all the time and this one is one that was built you know in the late 1800s and it's been washed out by a heavy storm and they have to get this wagon with a dead body and the five of their family like over it and like that's where all kind of the shit takes a turn for the worse. But yeah, Samson kind of is watching them from the porch as they like kind of come up to like the bridges, you know, his, his yeah, house. So, and this is what I mean where like you get kind of confused. First of all, yeah. one for me didn't understand what a funeral meant in this circumstance. So I was really confused about where we were in time. Cause I was like, wait, did they already bury her? Right. Cause how I, obviously, you know, how I understand a funeral is like, yeah, <laughs> it's the whole burial thing. Um, obviously not right. the only way, but yeah. like, yeah. And if you don't embalm them, you know, they start stinking within a day. Like. Yeah. Uh, so there's this whole thing, basically they're hurrying to try to get this coffin built to, so that when she dies see that's like the disturbing thing though right like i think it's supposed to be that like she's on her deathbed watching her son essentially or listening to her son like build her a coffin yeah but there's also the sense that she's like decided to die (laughs) which is also confusing um but basically the doctor comes as we've learned the fat doctor who does not want to have to ride up or walk up the hill because there's no horse available to him right um and no roads yeah um so they tow him up with a rope in the rain right like he's like walking up this thing with a rope (laughs) tied around his fat stomach yeah with that and then ants like they forget about it at one point and it's like yeah that's what i mean it's kind of country bumpkin like very you only see this in very rural like areas type stuff yeah i feel like there are things i miss but basically yeah he shows up and Addie, like, immediately dies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and so at first, Vardaman also thinks that the doctor killed her. <laughs> right. And the doctor's right. kind of frustrated. And this is all happening like, right when, I guess, Vardaman had, like, caught a fish or killed a fish or he was, like, in the process of maybe gutting a fish. Like, yeah. I don't fucking know. He had gutted that fish that they told he him to gut for He gutted a fish, yeah. yeah. Um, and he goes through this whole thing about the fish being not fish now <laughs> like right. and then the fish being his mother oh god vardaman and the fish kind of religious um, you would say like the flesh and blood right like the loaves and you could talk about the kind of and there was a lot people always talk about um what is the, the odyssey or whatever or whatever one of those but this like books. part stuck in my head i was like i can't get past this bit i was like oh this is kind of great <laughs> Vardaman talking about the fish and like trying to rationalize in his mind and um it is one of the most artistic parts in the book like the Vardaman sections maybe that's why there's such fascination around them not only because they're a little confusing and maybe a little out of place with the rest of the characters but maybe because Faulkner might take the most artistic liberty with that like Sophie said with this kind of fish imagery with this kind of you know Vardaman's confusion being a younger child not quite understanding the permanence of death yeah, and at but points, he also like, all, does. Uh, yeah. Punctuation will disappear, you know. Yeah. Um, I then say, I man, begin to run. I run toward the back and come to the edge of the porch and stop. Then I begin to cry. I can feel where the fish was in the dust. It is cut up into pieces of not fish now, not blood on my hands and overalls. Then it wasn't so. It hadn't happened then. 
And now she is getting so far ahead, I can't catch her. And that's the doctor is pissed because he said by the time Ants called, he's, he says in his chapter, he's like, well, Ants is telling me that she needs a doctor. So that means she's too far gone because Ants is an oh, idiot. Yeah. And he'd only and call me and when it's too that he far. Didn't yeah. Wanna, yeah, and we, we learned that he didn't even want to pay for a doctor, right? right. Like yeah. he just didn't. And he had put it off and he had said, no, nah, we don't need to get a doctor. For the $3, yeah. Yeah. Um, he is just a total asshole. Um, he, but yeah, and Vardaman is like talking about I can hear the bed and her face and them, and I can feel the floor shake when he walks on it that came and did it. That came and did it when she was all right, but he came and did it. Um, yeah, there's also, like, one of the first things I noticed was, like, the use of pronouns before, like, you know who that, pro- like, who that pronoun refers to. Right. Um, that'll happen a lot throughout this book. So, like... Even here, it took me a minute. Um, it took me until the line, the fat son of a bitch. <laughs> Bartman says the fat son of a bitch that I know that we're talking about, the doctor. Yeah, Peabody. Um, it took me a while to put that together. And I'm, you know, I think smarter people than me could have figured out that he came and then he did it. Could have alluded to him, right? Because she has just died. The doctor just showed up. Um, yeah. And it really is like a tragedy, right? Like the mother's calling for Jewel, Addie's calling for Jewel, and she's about to die. Like, yeah, what's the sense Jewel that is... you have of Addie, though? Well, I didn't have before. much. But hold on, I gotta pee real quick, and then I want to yeah, talk so about her I, chapter. Actually. Yeah, pee break. Toll's bridge gone too. Wonder if they ain't heard about the bridge. They'll have to fly then, I says. I don't reckon there's ever a bridge between here and mouth of Ishiwata. Ishitawa. The fat son of a bitch. <laughs> but yeah, See, dude. it's but it's a line like that that makes me think like not, you know, a nine year old. And then we get I jump from the porch running. The top of the barn comes swooping up out of the twilight. If I jump, I can go through it like the pink lady in the circus into the warm smelling without having to wait. Into the warm smelling. <laughs> My hands grab at the bushes. Beneath my feet, the rocks and dirt go rubbing, rubbling down. Then I can breathe again, and the warm smelling. I enter the stall, trying to touch him, and then I can cry. Then I vomit the crying. As soon as he gets through kicking, I can, and then I can cry. The crying can. Like, it gets really... Playful, I would say. That's why I say it's like his most artistic sections are the Varman um, sections, where he's yeah. fucking not just with the syntax, but he's fucking fucking with the way of like logic, the way you would see with the speech, and he's kind of dressing it up, and it dresses it up in a way where it gives the character more depth, while having yeah. this minor character who doesn't really have a lot of drama involved in the role. You know, his chapters are pretty short. He's just there as like a little artistic choice, and I guess that's why. But Addie, dude. Yeah, I, so that's what, what I was asking. What do we think of Addie? What do, yeah. Well, so there, what we think of Addie before and after her little piece. Don't think much of her at the beginning. Don't really have any ideas about her. But we do kind of get her painted in this, like, well, she's decided. Right. <laughs> she's decided to die, right? Like, it's interesting that that is, like 
a weird weird stance to take she's decided to die i've seen it before you know like and that's basically what the doctor says right i've seen it before um and in her chapter might be the most revealing but at the same time is saying like oh it's too late at the same time also blaming ants but also blaming her so i think that was kind of confusing and interesting um that she was insisting on being buried with her family when that would cause like such a fucking thing (laughs) i think is kind of crazy right um that's just me you know i can kind of understand it but at the same time in these circumstances it does seem kind of strange well that and i the idea and again this gets back to kind of faulkner and i mean you know we don't you guys don't have to take our word for it faulkner is considered one of the best american writers ever but it's i thought it was an interesting choice that we don't get this kind of full picture of Addie until well after her death and they're like in the bridge here and all this is going down and like all this stuff is happening and she's already stinking yeah and she's already dead and stinking in the coffin kind of getting waterlogged because it's in the in that flooded bridge and stuff and she like that for just that first paragraph of her section and this is page 153 in my version so it's like over halfway through the novel here uh in the afternoon when school was out and the last one had left with his little dirty snuffling nose instead of going home i would go down the hill to the spring where i could be quiet and hate them it would be quiet there then, with the water bubbling up and away and the sun slanting quiet in the trees and the quiet smelling of damp and rotting leaves and new earth, especially in the early spring, for it was worse then. Like, that's like, just like, she starts talking about how she kind of hated being a mother, like in this time. Yeah, and hated everything about it. And then how, she like... She seemed to hate being pregnant. She seemed to hate... I mean, I think it was maybe suggested that she hated being pregnant, but I'm only sort of inferring that from her sort of sense of, like, I couldn't be alone. I had a human inside of me. And then I also had my husband. Yeah, and how she just kind of took ants. She keeps saying, so I took ants. When she's talking about, like, you know, choosing a husband back then, right? Like, kind of whatever passed through in your town. He would pass the schoolhouse, the wagon creaking slow, his head turning slow to watch the door of the schoolhouse as the wagon passed. One day I went to the door and stood there when he passed. When he saw me, he looked quickly away and did not look back again. Yeah, how they met, and he was like always passing through, and then she learned that he would go out of his way so, to pass the schoolhouse so he could see her. <clears throat> and then she says, so I took ants. And when I knew that I had cash, I knew that living was terrible and that this was the uh, answer to it. She was in school. She was school age. Oh, she was in school? I mean, that's how it sounds, right? Right, 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 right. Okay. Like, I mean. Right. Which was the norm. I mean, come on. We're talking A tall like, man and young, so yeah. that he looked already like a tall bird hunched in the cold weather on his wagon uh-huh. seat. And then, yeah. I mean, she's that, saying uh, she went to the door of the schoolhouse, I assume. Stood yeah. there. Yeah. So I took ants, but then like a little bit later, here where she starts talking about like that. So I took ants, and when I knew that I had cash, I knew that living was terrible, and that this was the answer to it. That was when I learned that words are no good, <clears throat> that words don't ever fit, even when they are trying to say at it. When he was born, I knew that motherhood was invented by someone who had to have a word for it, because the ones that had the children didn't care whether there was a word for it or not. 
I knew that the fear was invented by someone that had, had, that had never had the fear, pride who never had the pride. I knew that it had been, not that they had dirty noses, but that we had had, had to, that we had, had had to use one another by words like spiders dangling by their mouths from a beam, swinging and twisting and never touching, and that only through the blow and that, on, and that only through the blows of the switch could my blood and their blood flow as one stream. So like we get into this kind of religious context, but then also this idea of like we already mentioned like the words, right? Like Addie's this character that only shows up once. This is the only appearance of Addie in the entire book besides her like laying there dying through everybody else's perspectives. But this is the only time we get like her perspective. And it's talking about ants, right? He had a word too, love, he called it. But I had been used to words for a long time. I knew that that, that I knew that, that that I knew that that word was like the others, just a shape to fill a lack that when the right time came, you wouldn't need a word for that any more than for pride or fear. Cash did not need to say it to me nor I to him, and I would say, let ants use it if he wants to, so that if, so that it was ants or love, love or ants, it didn't matter. Yeah, let's keep in mind she also looked forward to whipping her children because <laughs> she hated them. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think this is interesting. It also kind of made me hate her, but I pity her, you know, right. um, as someone who realistically doesn't have other options. I mean, maybe does, but like, I imagine very limited in terms of what is expected of a woman in a small town. Right. She sort of presents it even as a choice she made, but then sort of becomes really, really resentful really quickly. I didn't have a very positive view of Addie before right. this moment. But I don't think this moment changed it much for me, actually. No. Like, I think I sort of felt... Um, Maybe a little bit more at odds. I was more confused by her as a character and how bad to feel about her. Because I think somewhere in the middle, I kind of started to feel very sympathetic to her. Um, yeah. And there is something in me that still feels sympathetic to her. Cause just because, like, yeah, you're a woman. You're, like, sort of in a position where there's no other option for you except to have a family. And this is where it really builds the kind of domestic drama type stuff that we see in a lot of literary novels. Like with Addie laying down the fact that there was infidelity, that on some level she feels like Ants knows, kind of, that Jewel mm -hmm. is in his son kind of thing. That does make her, I think, a little, I don't know, maybe it is. I get, I keep going back and forth on how, whether or not I find her to be a very empathetic I liked Addie. A character I, I can empathize with very well. I liked Addie, and I liked it for this. Uh, this is the very last paragraph of her section, page 160 in my version, right before we get Whitfield, Jules' father's version of it. Uh, she says in the last paragraph of her section, One day I was talking to Cora. She prayed for me because she believed I was so blind to sin, wanting me to kneel and pray too, because pe because people to whom sin is just a matter of words... To them, salvation is just words, too. And it's just like, that yeah. ends her entire contribution. Salvation yeah. and sin. To them, salvation is just words, too. Yeah, but it becomes clear in this chapter also. Like, I think maybe I just... Yeah, I don't know how I feel about her. 
I think something in me changed toward her after this, but I don't know what it was. I don't really remember. But I do remember being increasingly angrier at Ants throughout this. <laughs> like, he is the one right. who ultimately, I think, takes all the heat from me. I think... Uh, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. But, but Addie's a bitch, too. She's kind of a right. dick. <clears throat> Um, she does seem more, a little more motherly, but not by a whole lot. Not by a ton. Yeah. But I, I and, do like know, the idea. Can we blame her? Whereas, like, you know, like a lot of big hits. So think of all the big literary hits. And I think this is part of why Faulkner was so famous. And a lot of these guys that write um, rural stuff are. It's because before that, right, we mostly had what people, what we call now is kind of the city novel, right? So we had domestic dramas, but they took place in like Jane Austen level where it's like upper class mm -hmm. rich folks in a nice manor house or in a nice city house edith wharton style you know and this is a domestic drama set in the poor south rural south kind of thing and you know that was a new thing at the time kind of with these little there was mostly city novels because again most dead people educated people were living in cities at the time most people that could read and write were living in cities at the time but like you know and this is kind of like it's the same type of deal, right? With cheating parents or people falling out of love and like the siblings fighting, whatever it is, kind of domestic drama, you know, the tropes of domestic drama. And then it's taking that and setting it in small town, rural America in the 1930s is kind of like the innovation, like not just like the style of how he told it here and like his style and all that, but like the actual kind of archetype if we're talking story kind of, but yeah, I liked it. I thought, and I think Addie's chapter, I think it was, I mean, clearly it was strategic to have one chapter of her. It's one of the longer perspective chapters, and it's all about her just talking about words, basically. And then she kind of gives us, like, what happened with Jewel and all that, like, and how she tried it's, to get, get yeah. over it and how she tried to, like, correct it. And we it. get a piece of that. We don't get yeah. the whole thing. We just get a piece of it. And then we get the rest of the story from Whitfield. Um, but, yeah, and, we, and like, we pity real... her. I don't yeah. particularly like her you know i i do pity her i think i sympathize with her i don't think she's the most sympathetic character yeah and i know we're running out of time now but it's like uh did you want to hit dewey dell at all the pregnancy because yeah. i wanted to hit dewey because dewey dell was one of my favorite characters i was telling nice sophie you. As we were like reading through this, and my two favorite characters for some reason, Cash and Dewey Dell were like my two favorite. That kept, and Cash is very soft spoken, like barely has any parts of this. Other people are talking about Cash usually, and not Cash talking about himself or like the events. But then towards the end, Dewey Dell kind of becomes the star of the book as she's like trying to get that kind of like abortion elixir from the pharmacists in these towns, or and, like, potentially procedure. Right, or an abortion procedure or... Um, Something. She's not even entirely sure what she's asking for, except that she was told that she could get medicine by the guy who knocked her up. Right, yeah. And, of course, this is Mississippi in 1930, so, like, she's going into these towns and asking pharmacists about female troubles, and they're all offended. They're like, well, yeah, you like, want my advice? Go get that boy to marry you or whatever. You yeah. know, very religious christian kind of yeah you know abortion all really is illegal. fucked up yeah. basically shame on you you know you know like, in america at this time man, you know yeah. that kind of shit and in, Amer in america at this time abortion was illegal but finally like, you know, some guy thinks that she's pretty so 
he's willing right. to entertain the idea. Everybody remembers the big hit, right? Or maybe not. Cider House Rules, right? That novel and then the movie was a big hit where it, it's about like this doctor who would perform illegal abortions because he was the only one that would do it kind of thing. And then he play, he trains this young boy who didn't go to medical school to do it. And like as he's like retiring and getting older, kind of, you know, Cider House Rules. It's a very good, very good story, very good movie. People who look it up if you haven't seen it. But yeah, you know, just about the whole abort, you know, because it was illegal. It was illegal. It wasn't like today where we like, you know, we understand that it's important to have access to that kind of stuff for healthcare. So, you know, product of its time. This is why we talk about books being like kind of the context around books, kind of a, a record of what we saw, even if it is a fiction kind of thing, what the yeah. world was like. But Dewey Dell being pregnant, and that's where we it get also like, sounds like Darl seemed to know what was up. Yeah, or well, that's suggested. what we talked about. There was like a little bit of a hint that Darl and Vardaman saw him. Like, Vardaman saw her having sex with the guy or whatever in the barn. Or something. Because Vardaman keeps talking about how, like, he can't he can't say what he saw. Dewey Dell made him promise not to say what he saw kind of thing around the barn because he was looking for stuff. But I thought the thing that he saw... So here's what I'm unclear about because I also thought that at first. But then I thought maybe... Uh, it, it was, was Daryl burning, burning was, the barn down. Yeah, I thought that's what they said it was. I think I think you're right, but then I started thinking like, is it both? Because Varden yeah. is a little kid, he's kind of playing around the barn, is and he? he sees. Well, you know, at least Again, younger than the still other don't ones. Don't know. The only mm. age we know is that Dewey Dell is 17, and everyone is older than her except for Varden. Right. So it makes me think that like Daryl and Cash are like in their 30s, right? Like, or 20s, marriage age. Right. I mean, because that's alluded to, right? They need to get married. Um, yeah. And, but, but something yeah. about... Yeah. Go on. Sorry. But yeah, the whole thing... I mean, we we should talk about Darl, too. Um, going crazy at the end. What do we think of yeah. Darl going crazy? Yeah. I was confused as fuck. Me, too. I didn't quite fit, I thought. I was really lost. I was like, wait, when? How? What? Like, yeah. it just seems like all of a sudden we learn that he's being taken away and he's like, he won't stop laughing or maybe it was that he got found out. Right. Um, someone right. for who, one of the guys. So basically it sounds like maybe Vardaman saw Darl setting fire to the barn. Right. right. So they had stopped somewhere after, after they, you know, get across the bridge, right? And right. everything goes wrong. Probably should mention that. Everything fucking goes wrong. Well, because the bridge is flooded, they try to pass it anyway, Cash going under the water. breaks his leg and passes yeah. out. They then and take And they take him. the wagon over the bridge under the water. But yeah. it gives because the bridge is giving. And the bridge gives out and the wagon They lose take their it. mules, yeah. I guess. So, uh, mules die. Yeah. Cash gets kicked in the stomach and breaks his leg because he's trying to hold on to the coffin and his tools while everything's going underwater. And, you know, everybody else is jumping clear and Cash is staying there trying to hold the reins. And so he gets stuck, and, you know, because Cash is like the stoic hero character. He's very quiet, very kind of stoic cowboy, southern cowboy, right? He's like, it don't bother me none, right? He's had a broken leg for oh, days. But it's he's so probably an excruciating, yeah. Because that's probably exactly. excruciating pain. And they're like, are you okay, but Cash? That, He's like, it don't bother none. You know, just kept saying Yeah, that. but that yeah. doesn't, I don't know, that didn't make him more likable to me. That just made him more like ants. Stubborn and. 
Yeah. It, Stupid. Or energy. just like unwilling to take help. That's when they go. They pour. They pour concrete to stabilize the leg. Yeah, and and it's just like very clear that that's not okay. I mean, like you don't, you know. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that even in 1930, they knew that was a bad idea. Um, If you were educated, you probably knew. But yeah, yeah, but it it seems like you know they're at this place and this guy is like, "You sure you want to do that? I don't know that I'd do that." You probably shouldn't do that. Um, like, just throw some sand in it. It'll be all right. It don't bother me none. That's what Cass yeah. says. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they like pouring so the cement just, into his open wound. Like, yeah. Yeah, basically. Giving just, him an infection. <laughs> yeah, and then like his leg and toes, like his foot <coughs> turns black. Because the cement hardens and cuts off the circulation. And yeah. So now he has and a dead foot. Like, yeah. yeah, it's fucking gross. They break it off and it rips off his skin, you know, and he's like, yeah, it's cool. It don't bother me, nah. Uh, yeah, they won't take help. They won't take food from anybody. They're all like dropping weight. That's referred to a number of times. Yeah. Like they all look kind of gaunt. Uh, I ain't going to be beholden to no man. That's what they kept yeah, saying. Yeah, it's right? just all So if they very... took food, they'd be beholden to somebody. If they took money, if they took, if they buried her someplace other than Jefferson, they'd be or like. Or said, like, you know, here, take, you know, take our shit. Like, you lost all your shit trying to cross this shitty bridge. Take our stuff. Um, Take these horses. Yeah. Borrow them. And he says no over and over again. Um, so yeah, I don't know. What were we even talking about? Darl going crazy. I don't talking about Dewey Dell's kind of a- emphasis at the end and the kind of breaking up of the family as we go along this travel. Yeah, but we route. were mentioning Darl going crazy too, right? Like, and right. that was well, kind not- of strange. Didn't quite fit with everything else. Um, so yeah, but like when they stop at this place and they're offered. This other guy's team, as he says, which I assume just means like his mules, horses, whatever, um, and whatever else right. they need to get to town. They say no, and I guess Vardaman sees Darl lighting the barn on fire. Yeah. I'm not sure I understood why that happened. I just remember, like, okay, it goes up in flames. Everyone's freaking out. They're trying to pull the animals out. Uh, Jewel is, like, he ends up getting badly hurt or at least burned. Like, fairly badly, it sounds like. Because he goes in and tries to get the coffin that's also in there, too. Jewel literally runs out with the coffin. Like he literally yeah. like, catches himself on fire to like save yeah. his dead mother's body. And then after this moment, it sounds like maybe the people who I don't remember what are their names, like McAllen or something, or McAllen like and Samson are the the. I don't know. It's like some neighbor's house on their way. Yeah. So it's like a it's, neighbor, but you know, in the rural south at that time, a neighbor is you know forty miles away or whatever. Sure. You know, um, so so it, they don't see them all the time, but they know like who they are. Someone whose name started with a G. Yeah, I, know who I don't remember. About. But yeah, it was one of the sort of side people, right? Where they Arm, had been Armstead? staying. Armstead. Armstead or sure, something. Sure, and they've been staying there. Lights it on fire, and I guess 
someone learns that Darl did it and what they show up in town and take him away is that what happens because it was really unclear to me yeah I'm not saying it was like unclear I mean like I'm just not sure (laughs) it just didn't I wasn't following at that point um but it does like make you inclined to like want to go back and see like is Darl just like going crazy through this whole thing like is he like just beginning to lose his mind because he seems in a lot of ways like to me sort of like the reasonable one right yeah like i said i don't know if it quite fit i'd have to read again but this is one listeners where like if you read it again like you pick up more each time you know yeah so this i'd be curious definitely to one you want to buy again. and reread every every decade or so if you're a book person or you like i will say and the norton is really good it's not like it has extensive notes or anything through it i was gonna ask actually yeah. out. no it really one of the only things that's noted throughout is reference to bible verses right the kind um, of allusion to and that's that it and, there's no um, like explanation of what's happening there's no like this is what faulkner said or this is what scholars it's always, have said it's, it's just, always interesting like the footnotes are only as useful as whoever wrote them you know yeah, so yeah. like when you're trying like if there's this dead technology that would be really useful to the have bible stuff didn't add anything like i didn't really right, read yeah, the bible footnotes exactly. because i was like i don't need that <laughs> like it's right. not it doesn't matter if it's referring to a specific verse in this moment unless i'm writing some big paper that has to do with the bible and its interpretation and in the south in this moment and in my copy you know my copy is put out by vintage it doesn't have footnotes and like an introduction and afterward yeah so like and i and i agree with you that like i didn't need it so like i could pick up on the religious themes i could pick up on like the kind of allusions to religious stories without knowing the exact Bible yeah well and like and i don't like yeah that. you don't need to know those things as one who is really just all maybe but embarrassingly one thing, unfamiliar with any amount of like bible literature right like i didn't have a problem there um but that one was thing not i will was, say i was wish confusing about this book yeah I wish more footnotes would emphasize what I really care about when I'm reading an old book with footnotes is like the dead tech. Cause we had like a footnotes in that Moby Dick and stuff. I really wish that there were footnotes that would show me that like what this dead tech is, like what it looks like or like what it was used yeah, for. That's Cause they just to refer to it by name first. and everybody knew like, what it was at the time. Like I had to look up some but, of the technical, yeah. like especially, I mean, immediately I was like, yeah. Uh, I don't remember, but it was something about the kind of saw that he was using to build the coffin or something. I don't remember what it was, but it was some some piece of like, you know, farming shit or like, you know, building or carpentry stuff. (laughs) Farming shit. Yeah, yeah. Well, even that, there's a lot of reference about. to farming equipment, but a lot of it's just old, stuff dead, I don't know dead about. Dead technology, yeah. Yeah, yeah, farming yeah. equipment. So like pre tractors, kind of everybody, every farmer owning a you know John Deere. But like uh, as we move on here, what do we think of the end, the ending? Oh my god, dude! Yeah, reactions infuriating. I mean, it just had, can you hate Aunt Spundren anymore? Yeah. <laughs> he stole yeah. his daughter's money that was given to her by the neighbor right to get an abortion to get a secret abortion or i'm assuming like did the neighbor actually give it to her because cora does not seem like somebody who would be cool with that i did not read her as okay with abortion 
I'm sure she's not. Yeah, I'm sure she. The or character. any amount of sex out of outside of marriage. For, and there's a little <laughs> like, bit of a hint. There's a there's a hint that Cora knew that in Addie's section that Addie that Jewel wasn't Ants' son. There's like mm-hmm. a hint. They don't say it outright, but there's like a hint that Cora knew why she was always trying to tell Addie to pray for salvation and pray yeah. for her sins and stuff. And it's you know it's very subtle, very su- very literary in that way, like very subtle. But yeah, the ending I thought was pretty good because it ends with this, yeah, like nothing changes, kind of very kind of, you know, Great Depression era modernist ending where it's like very tragic and very kind of, wow, like, (laughs) you know. Yeah, well, basically they go to town to bury his dead wife and he comes home with a new one. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and teeth. And teeth now, yeah. That he. That's why he took the ten dollars. He from took his, those ten dollars from his daughter, um, so that he could go buy himself teeth. Yeah. And introduces in the last moments to this woman who is walking along beside him, and he says, "You know, meet Mrs. Bundren." <laughs> Got me a new wife. So Got me fucked a new up. One got me a new one. Oh yeah yeah dude absolutely i mean but it is like it hits you know, after like that's, they've been shooed out I'll of town say. because the body like stinks so much yeah those were great scenes when that was in one of the, the town best. folk are treating them like you know aliens coming into a i was planet. itching yeah. for something to happen so badly that like when yeah. shit started to go wrong i was like thank god and the way that Thank we get God the Dewey doll. we finally doll, have gotten to the bridge. It has been so long of reading about this fucking bridge. <laughs> so mad. And when we get to the Dewey doll, you know, it's, I think it's a good choice that they, he told it through the pharmacist perspectives mm-hmm. as like this little country girl with no shoes coming up to their store. And she had those black eyes that let him know that she was from the, she went from the towns, you know, right. As they say, she had little dark black eyes that let him know she was one of the rural girls kind of thing. No shoes. I don't remember. Oh, she didn't yeah. have shoes or anything? Yeah, well, that's what the one pharmacist noticed, that she's in the kind of a dirty dress. She's barefoot, and he's and like... And she's, like, wearing... In... Isn't she, like, wearing her good clothes, too? Like she Yeah, she, like, changed, yeah, to go to town. But she's barefoot with dirty feet and all that, and he's, like, she's walking like she's used to walking in bare feet kind of thing. Yeah. All that, yeah. That was a good choice. Uh, my last thing before we finish, I didn't. Did you want to talk class elements or fatherhood themes or anything like that? I think we hit everything else. Um, why is Jules' mother a horse? Right, I think that's Vardaman's way of knowing, right? Kind of. That is Jewel, it. That Jewel know. isn't. I was, con- I was so confused. like the rest of them. That Jewel's a little because different. It doesn't that come through Darl first though probably daryl probably yeah. knows yeah i don't know like your mother's a horse but who's your father jewel i mean just say keep saying god damn you right yeah but they all kind of know it you know yeah, yeah there's that kind of, of the fatherhood yeah we don't have to go too into it but yeah the class elements i would say the best yeah. examples are that town scenes where they show the two different classes people that live in town have enough money to live in town versus the people that live in the rural parts you know all that fatherhood ants is a piece of shit like kind of terrible father um yeah it's just like using his kids basically right 
as service, as labor. And they, yeah, they invoke and the things that they buy, and the invocation of God, right? He thinks he deserves new teeth the way God intended him to, like you know, because he couldn't eat solid meats and stuff. Intended, yeah. But also, like, it's pretty hard to chew. You know, but by his logic, also God would have intended him not to have teeth. Right. Right. Like all of these things, because God has intended everything in His world. Everything is about God. God put roads far away from homes you know like there's that was the first moment when i was like oh this is funny to me now (laughs) god made the roads sorry guys i'm sorry yeah i can't i can't not no god didn't make the roads yeah yeah it's hard for us to do that i get yeah it is hard it's like Sophie and I were both raised, like, again, we've talked about like raised in religions, but not like really super like Orthodox religions or like going to like temple or church every weekend and yeah. stuff. But like, you know, and then we both grew up to be like atheists, like uh, overeducated atheists, I guess. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't our, know that anyone uh, yeah. in my family believes in God, though. Right. Not that kind of. Not that kind of religious. But yeah, but I mean, you know, you and I are both kind of this yeah it's hard for us to say oh god did it you know it's hard for me to be like "Mm." (laughs) right but i think that's also something that faulkner is like specifically like right maybe poking some fun at or like and class kind of stuff too right like we hit everything he wanted to Uh, yeah there was that moment in the beginning that i was unsure about where i guess vardaman had put holes in the coffin right he like Acc- secretly drills holes because he thinks his mom's a fish or whatever and he's but i didn't realize that i was really confused and i thought like because they had just been talking about ants i think so i was like did ants do this it was like it was one of those pronoun places where i was really confused and it wasn't clarified right. until later and like he had put the auger through her face there were auger holes in her face right jesus dude but and that was just like the first fuck up but you know wild yeah yeah crazy good book though i mean i'd recommend it great book really i mean it's fucking sad yeah um i haven't watched the movie version but i was surprised to learn there's only one film version of this and guess who directed it james franco yeah franco directed wrote in stars i think yeah uh, I haven't watched it, but it makes me want to watch it now. Maybe I'll do a bonus. It makes listeners. so much sense yeah. to me that there is only one adaptation and it is his. I feel yeah. like, I mean, it would be so hard. The thing that, yeah, that's what Hollywood always said was that it was unfilmable. Like the way it's told, you'd have to rewrite the whole story to make it like a coherent film version of this. It and, you know, would, a lot I mean, of writers, would, I, I would feel as a kind film, of, it yeah. would look very different. It would right. be and a, lot of writers, a different story in some ways is there a writer that would feel comfortable enough totally butchering Faulkner to make a coherent screen? You know, that would puts writers yeah, in a weird James position. Franco. Yeah. Franco was willing to do it, but yeah, I don't, I, I don't remember if how that was reviewed. It probably wasn't reviewed. Not well. couldn't have been yeah. well because like, I would have heard of it otherwise. Yeah. yeah. I think I we probably would have seen would've... it. Yeah. But I might, uh, I might watch it now that we've read this and do a bonus listeners. So subscribe, patreon.com slash heavy board, maybe. Yeah. Alright, we good? You done? I think we hit everything. That's good.
Oh, yeah. And soiled garments. <sighs> Do we think? Are we going to go there? Did Did Addie shit herself? Oh. Uh, yeah, oh. probably. Probably. Yeah. So don't yeah, don't shit your all. shit yourself in your deathbed, dude. I mean, hopefully, like you know, if it happens, it happens before I'm put into any kind of burial space. Yeah, <laughs> they'll usually. Uh, um, well, that's why we embalm bodies. Yeah, we take all that out before. Jews don't. Oh really? No. Yeah. Like just don't. Orthodox we ones, don't. or like. We, um, to my knowledge, we do not. Period. But I mean, like, like people you have that... to have the funeral quickly, like as I. Right. Like I don't think in my family that's something that happens, but maybe it does. I don't know. I guess it would depend how strict you adhere to the yeah. You know, I really honestly doctrine. don't know. I really because don't I don't know, know if there's state laws against that. Like you can't just bury like a unembalmed dead body somewhere. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess you know. could, but it's not technically. I mean, legal, there are Jewish but... cemeteries. Yeah, like, okay, I guess there's, like, exceptions for that, yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know enough about but yeah, it. But, yeah, I, I don't know either, actually. Couldn't tell you. But, right. like, we also don't, like, view the body. Like, that's a thing. Right. Yeah. Huh. Did you ever watch that movie, The Vigil? Maybe. With about, like, remember. that, um, you know, like, in Orthodox Judaism, there's, you have to watch the body. You have to sit sit shiva but then there's somebody that like watches the body when nobody's there because you're not supposed to leave the body alone yeah and then there's like it's like a horror like movie I rem- a, yeah i remember yeah. this but i don't remember what happens or if i actually finished it it's a decent movie it's a decent little indie flick kind of low yeah. budget indie horror movie decent a lot of it's in um you know uh yiddish or, or hebrew or something like half the movies in subtitles i feel like i remember, I remember it's about like you know on tv yeah on like an orthodox TV, community but in like a city probably new york or you know a vague city like that and yeah. it's it's decent decent little horror indie flick made some noise i think in like 2018 2019 it came out it was all right yeah but yeah they don't talk about embalming bodies so i don't know but yeah all right that's it listeners this has been heavy board see ya I am heavy, heavy, heavy board.
guys unite sweats and the day sweats, pal? Pal, I do.